Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in his plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. And we are going to get into the word of God. And so we're in John chapter 13 tonight for our Bible study. Um, you know, we, we kind of live in a time and, and we live in a society and, and in a culture that is certainly, um, it's true of, of our country as of our nation, but I think it's a worldwide thing where we have kind of become a, a, a culture where advancement and progress and success has more to do with cleanliness than competence. And what I mean by that is that the, the way it seems that you advance in, in, in your job or the way you advance in your status or in your career or the way you advance a cause is not by um, being able or even being passionate, but rather it's by making everybody else look bad and you somehow look better. You know, So if you can dig up dirt on someone or if you can make up dirt about someone, or if you can set someone up that makes them in a way that makes them dirty, then what that does is it provides you an opportunity to look good just by making someone else look bad. So it has nothing to do with you being qualified. It has everything to do with just making everybody else look a little bit darker, and that way you can advance. And so it's not competence as much as it is cleanliness. And we see that all over the place. I mean, how do we make a politician great? Is we just make everybody else look bad? You know, how do we destroy a politician? Just make them look bad. You know, that's kind of the culture that we've created. It's advancement through assassination leveraging people's failure in order to manipulate outcomes and magnify uh, the self or magnify the cause in that way, you know. And, and yet when we look at Jesus, who is the prince and the author of life, we see that he shows us a more excellent way, you know, than just uh, digging up the dirt on someone. And so the title of the message tonight is I've Got the dirt on you. And so I want you to just look at the person next to you right now, look at them real intently, and I want you to tell them, I've got the dirt on you. <laughs> and by the, end, by the end of the message tonight, you'll understand the meaning of that to be something far different than what you think uh, it means right now. And so we're in John chapter 13 for our study and I'll turn your attention to the text as we read uh, together. It says in verse 1, it says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. And supper being ended, the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he was come from God and went to God, he riseth from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. He clothed himself with the towel. And after that, he poureth water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. Then cometh he to Simon Peter, and Peter saith unto him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? And Jesus answered and said unto him, What I do thou knowest not now, but you shall know hereafter. And Peter said unto him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I wash thee not, then you have no part with me. And Simon Peter said unto him, Lord, then not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Talk about bipolar swinging of pendulum. He goes from, I don't even have feet, to now, Lord, wash my whole body. And Jesus said unto him, He that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit. And you are clean, but not all. For he knew who should betray him. Therefore said he, you are not all clean. Speaking, of course, of Judas. So after he had washed their feet and had taken his garments and was set down again, he said unto them, Know ye, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me Master and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. 
If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither is he that is sent greater than he that sent him. And if you know these things, happy are you if you do them. And if I would ask you just to jump with your eyes over to verse 34 and 35, which is the conclusion of the chapter and the conclusion of the message that Jesus is illustrating. He says, a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one to another. And so as we come into this chapter, as we read verse 1, where it just begins to set the backdrop for us of, uh, of the time and of the situation and of the emotion and of the things that are going on inside the heart of, of Jesus at this time, uh, what we realize is that he's come to a point where his public ministry is completed. Uh, he's no more dealing with the public. He's no, no longer dealing with religious people. He's no longer teaching or debating. He's no longer healing or doing miracles. Uh, he's, he's no longer interacting with them. That part is over completely. And he is now in that final uh, moment of his life where he has one last meal with his disciples that have been with him for all of this time. And we're told three things just there in the first verse. We're told, first of all, that the hour has come and that Jesus knew that his hour had come. And so he realizes that the capstone of his cause, what he came to accomplish, is now at hand. And the ministry of Jesus really had uh, two objectives. Number one was to reveal the Father by example. And that's what Jesus did for three and a half years uh, in public life. He revealed the heart of God. He revealed the teaching of God. He revealed the fulfillment of what God set him forth to be from the beginning all the way up until the time of Christ. And he has now completed that part of his mission. And then the second thing that Jesus came to do, which is infinitely greater, but took an immensely less amount of time, was that he would then go to the cross and he would lay down his life, pouring out his blood as a sacrifice, the Lamb of God, in order to pay the price for the sins of the world. And so it's that hour that's now upon him, and it tells us that he knew it. And so what we come to realize is that Jesus was fully beginning to feel the weight and the pressure of, of that pain that he was about to go through, the crushing of having to go through the cross, that the weight of that is now beginning to fall upon him as he's there with his disciples. And we're told there at the end of verse 1 that the thing that is driving him in spite of what he's feeling and in spite of what's before him is he's motivated by an unending love that he has for the people that he's called, not just those that are before him, but any that are in the world. He says that he is loving his own which were in the world and that he loved them all the way unto the end. And so at this moment where he's facing the cross and the weight of it beginning to fall upon him, he is driving forward in spite of that pressure, motivated only by a love that he has for the disciples that are there around him and those that are even afar off that have yet to even be born. And it says that the, 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 the strength of that love is that it's a love that endures all the way to the end. And when it says that, it's not talking about his wit's end. He, he, it's not saying that he loves them as long as he can possibly tolerate it. But in that it says that he loved them to the end, and we see that end to be that he carried their sin to the cross, we realize that his love went to the level that where he would love them even if it killed him. And that's a level of love that you and I are so very unfamiliar with. Because even the love that we possess in our imperfection as humans can only go so far. And, and when we say that we love someone to the end, it means that we love them to the furthest point that we can. But for Jesus, he was saying that my love is going to be so enduring that I am going to love you even if it kills me. And it's going to bring me to that point of death. And that's the thing that's driving Jesus at this point. 
Now it tells us in verse 2 that there was another dark cloud that was overshadowing the heart of Christ when he was in this moment. And that is that he knew that sitting at that very table with him was the man that would betray him. That Judas Iscariot was already inspired by the devil to give Christ over into the hand of the Romans that would exercise their authority in carrying out the crucifixion. And Jesus is feeling not just the pressure of what that will be, but he's feeling the pain of the betrayal that will come from a man that he has shown such intimacy to. And we know, not from this text, but from other texts, that not only is he carrying that, but he's also carrying the understanding that Peter is going to deny him. And that all of the disciples are going to forsake him and flee. And the pressure of that is weighing on him as much as the event of actually going through the crucifixion. And yet in spite of that, Jesus is going to go forward with what he has to do this night. In verse 3, we're told three more things that Jesus is aware of. Notice with me what it says in verse 3. It says that Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands... Now, at first reading, you look at that and you just think, well, that just means that all authority has been placed now upon Jesus. And absolutely, that is true. Jesus, it says that it has been given to him that he is the head over all things and to the church, that that nothing is, is above him. He has been given all. But there's more to it than that. What we're told in this, when it says that all things have been placed into his hands... We're being told that he is doing what he is about to do of his own free will. Now, we know that Jesus is going to be obedient to the Father's will. And we know that Jesus has a cause and he's going to complete this cause. But we must understand that he is not doing what he's about to do, both in this room and in the cross that he's about to embrace because of something that was required of him, but all things have been placed into his hands and he can make the decision of whether or not he wants to go forward and go through with it or not. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 53, when the Roman soldiers come and Peter draws his sword and thinks that he's going to somehow fight them off and rescue Jesus from this moment... Jesus tells Peter to put his sword away and he says these words to him. He says, don't you know that I could not now if I wanted to pray the father and he could give me this moment presently more than 12 legions of angels that would come and deliver me from this moment. He had the authority to press the pause button or the stop button at any moment in it, but he didn't do it. All things were given into his hand. It's on him, and he's driven by a love that's going to make him to endure it. We're also told there not only that all things have been placed into his hand, but we're told that he knew where he had come from. He says that he knew that he was come from God. In other words, that Jesus goes forward into what he's about to do with a full and complete understanding of who he is, meaning that he's not going to do what he's about to do because of a sense of needing to find his identity. He has nothing to prove. He's not going to get an attaboy on the other side of this. He's not going to earn a merit badge. He's not going to advance to a new level. He is completely already aware of where he came from. He has a full sense of who he was, and it's important to understand that and understanding his motive in it. And then it tells us finally at the end of verse 3, it says that he knew not only that he was come from God, but that he went to God. Now, I want you to think about that for a minute, because where is Jesus going as soon as he leaves this earth? He's going to heaven, right? He is going to paradise. He is going to glory. And what that means is that Jesus has absolutely nothing to lose in the moment right now where he is facing this. In other words, he could put the kibosh on the whole thing, he could choose not to go to the cross, and he would go immediately back into the presence of God. He would get glory, he would get heaven, he would reassume his place at the Father's right hand, he would be right there, and he would have that position regardless of whether or not he goes 
through with the offering of himself as a sacrifice for sin. He could have it or he could not. Now, I, wanna, I want you to do something for me. I want you to close your eyes, and I'm going to ask you to visualize. And what I want you to do is just close your eyes for a minute, and I want you to visualize your paradise, your picture of paradise right now. Whatever that is for you. And I realize that that could be a vast array of different scenes and settings, smells, sounds, music playing. Whatever paradise is for you, I want you to picture that in your mind right now. And I'm going to set you up. Don't open your eyes yet. But I want you to be completely honest with me when I ask you this next question. And I want you to answer by the raising of your hand. How many of you in your picture of paradise right now that you're looking at in your mind, there is not another single human soul other than you? Raise your hand. Honestly, be honest with me. Be honest with me. Okay, most of the hands in this room are raised right now. You can open your eyes and you can, you can put your hands down and the whole thing. Listen, listen, here's what I want you to understand about the heart of our Savior in this moment going forward is that he is in a position where he can have paradise. He can have the paradise of God and he can be the king over all of it with all authority to do all things. But he didn't want to experience that. He didn't want to move into that. He didn't want to live in that place without you there that you had enough value to him that he was going to endure something that no human being or any being for that matter would ever endure with no other cause in mind than that you would be there with him. And he's willing to endure the cross for that sake. And I'm convicted by that because guess what? Guess what my paradise is. You ain't there. All right. I'm an introvert. I recharge by myself. That's just my nature. God is working on me and I'm praying about it. You know the whole thing. But here's the reason why that's true for most of us, that we would say our paradise is singular, that no one else is there in that place. It's because there's something lacking in our ability to see what God sees when we look at another human being. When the Apostle Paul prays in Ephesians chapter 1, I mean, Ephesians 1 is just like one of those places that you could just read it over and over and over again and just really like almost pinch yourself and say, is this really true, God, these promises and these blessings and these things that you've spoken about that we've been called, that we've been chosen, that we've been accepted, that we're loved, that God has given to us, that he's made us qualified to be partakers of his inheritance. And and it just goes on and on. The more you, you realize what it is, it's bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And then Paul says, after listing all of those things, and it's thick, man, it's saturated. He just says, for this cause, I bow my knees and I pray for you. He said in Ephesians chapter 1. And he said, this is my prayer that God, listen, this is, this is God's will. If, if it's a prayer in the Bible, then it's something that God wants to give you and me. And he says, here's my prayer that God would give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, meaning that God wants you to know him more and more every day. And then he says, secondarily, that the eyes of your understanding would be opened, meaning the eyes that we have that are not visible, physical eyes, but spiritual eyes to be able to see things that exist that are intangible and comprehensible in the spirit, but not visible in the flesh, that those eyes would be opened, that you would have a vision of who God is, a vision of his kingdom, a vision of his future, of his glory, of who he is. And then he says, thirdly, that you might know what is the hope of his calling that you would come into a greater understanding and comprehension both of what he has put in you for you to fulfill in your life now and what he has prepared for you in the kingdom and the ages to come in glory and eternity, that you would understand that and know it, that it wouldn't just be this abstract thing that maybe you'll discover, maybe you won't, or maybe it's good or maybe it's not, but that you would know what it is. And then he prays this fourth thing, fourth, the four, the number four. He says, and... He says, and that you might know what is the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Now, do you know who the saints are? Listen, it ain't Jehoshaphat or Stanislaus or it ain't, it ain't the dead people that made it into some realm. 
Look, the saints are you and me. We are sanctified. That's what makes us saints. And what Paul is saying is that you need God to open your eyes to see the value that exists in other people that you can't see with your physical seeing. And what we see in the person of Christ at this moment is that he sees something in you and in me and in humanity that paradise without you isn't an option for his contentment because he wants you with him, which means that he sees something about you and me that we don't see about you and me. But if we did, then we would be driven in the same way that Jesus was driven. It says that he knew that he came from God and that he went to God. So that means he knew all of this. He knew what was coming. He knew what he was doing. He knew who he was doing it for. He knew that he didn't have to if he didn't want to. And he knows that it's all on him. And in that context, with that backdrop, it tells us in verse 4 what he did. Notice what he did. It says that he riseth from supper and he laid aside his garments and he took a towel and he girded himself. The first thing he did is he rose from the place of his reclining. That in the moment of his greatest pressure, when he had more adversity against him than at any other time, he rose from the place of comfort. He stands to his feet. And in the audience of those whose eyes are fully fixed and set upon him in this moment, he begins to take off the clothes that he is wearing. Now, I want you to understand the significance and the importance of what this means and that Jesus disrobes himself. Because when you read the Old Testament... And you read about the clothing that was placed upon God's high priest, of whom Christ is the fulfillment. The high priest was the picture, Christ is the fulfillment. Those garments, those clothes, represented everything of who he was and what his calling was to be. And for Jesus to take off his clothes, what he is doing is he is removing from himself, first of all, his sense of identity. The fact that he was deity. He was removing his authority, the distinction that set him apart from the rest of humanity. He was removing his power from himself. Remember when the woman touched the hem of his garment? She said, if I could just touch the blue border, that'll be enough. And sure enough, it was the power that flowed through him because of what he was wearing, representing his authority, his power. It represented his giftedness, his distinction, the bell and the pomegranate that went around the base and the border of him. That, that represented his speciality and who he was. He took all of that off. And what he became before them in what he's about to do is that he became just Jesus the man. In other words, what he's about to do, he doesn't do it as king. He doesn't do it as savior or shepherd or provider or helper or healer or fighter. He does this just as Jesus. He takes off his robe of authority And then what he does is he grabs a servant's towel. Notice what it goes on to say. It says that he took a towel, a servant's towel, and he girded himself, meaning that he put it on, and that was intentional. He didn't just whip it over his shoulder so that he would have free use of his hands. He didn't put it in his mouth or set it on the floor next to the basin. He actually girded himself meaning that he removed one set of clothes that represented one thing and he put on something else that represented something altogether different. And that something was a servant's towel. He went from being the Lord of all creation. He went from being their teacher and their master, their friend, their shepherd, their savior, their helper, their provider. He went from being the great I am to becoming the lowest person in the room the servant of all. He put on that towel and in his humility, the bareness of his legs exposed, the bareness of his upper body, whatever that looked like in that context, sitting there with those people that would be dressed for that supper. How do you dress for Easter? He's in a robe or a towel. He's clothed in this towel. And then it says that he took water. He took water. Now this is the seventh mention out of eight of water in John's gospel. The first being when Jesus turned water into wine, the water being a symbol of the joy that comes through the Holy Spirit. 
The second time was with the woman at the well when he said, if you knew who it was, you would have asked me and I would have given you living water, the water speaking of the satisfaction that the Holy Spirit provides when Jesus pours it out and gives it. The third being the man at the pool of Bethesda who couldn't get into the water to be healed, but the water came to him in the person of Jesus and healed him in that moment, the water representing the healing power of the Spirit of God that's poured out by Jesus. The fourth mention of water is when Jesus walked upon the water, showing that he has authority over it. That which we are immersed in, he walks on it, he stands on it, he's got power over it. The next mention, the fifth mention of water in the Gospel of John is when Jesus stands up on the great day of the feast and he says, if any man thirsts, let him come unto me and drink. And out of his belly will flow torrents of living water. It speaks of the power that God provides in our life through the outpouring and inflowing and flowing through of his spirit in our lives. The sixth mention of water is when Jesus, with the blind man, makes a clay and puts it on his eyes and then tells him to go to the pool of Siloam and wash. And it represents the vision that the spirit, the water of God's spirit gives when it's placed upon our eyes and upon our life. And then the seventh mention of it is right here where Jesus takes water and he puts it in a basin and it represents the cleansing power of his spirit in our daily lives. Do you know what the eighth mention of water is in the Gospel of John? It's when the spear thrusts into the side of the Savior as he's there on the cross and it tells us that simultaneously, at the same time, blood and water were released. That at the same moment, at the same moment that the price was being paid for sin, that the blood was pouring out, the blood that makes us righteous, the blood that qualifies us to be the children, the sons and daughters of God, at the same moment that that price was being paid, the water that you and I need most was being released. What we needed most in our lives was being given simultaneously at that moment. Eight happens to be the number of new beginnings, and that's what the blood does. It gives us a new beginning in our life. He takes water and he puts it in a basin. And then it tells us right after he took this water that he began to wash the feet of the disciples. He began to wash their feet and then to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. In other words, he went from one to the next and he would take the water. Now, he didn't have soap. We're not told that he had any kind of a scrub. He used his bare hands and he used pure water from a basin and he would begin to wash their feet. Now, there have been foot washing services, you know, demonstrations, things that have been done. Well, listen, every single time you'll ever see that in a church context... People know it's going to happen in advance, and they prepare for that, right? (laughs) These guys had no idea that this was about to come, and they would come in their sandals. And I want you to think about these guys, because I know you're thinking like religious people that are all prim and proper, but think Woodstock, okay? Because these guys have been traveling, right? For the last six months, they've been on the road. They've got like one, maybe, maybe they have another set of robes, you know? But these guys are not clean at this moment like they're up there and their feet are their feet and jesus now begins one by one to wash their feet and and i want you to think visually of what was taking place as they watch jesus in probably perfect silence move from person to person to person is that he washes the first one and then he takes the towel that he's girded with and he begins to wipe their feet and then he moves to the next one and he does the same and as he moves from person to person, to person, not only is that towel probably growing more and more damp, the towel is also growing more and more dark. Because the dirt that is on each of their feet is slowly accumulating on the towel that Jesus is using to wipe off the dirty water that he is wiping their feet with. And what happens to Jesus in this moment that he wipes their feet is that he is literally becoming girded or clothed with the dirt that they have been walking in. He is trading what he was wearing on the outside, his high priestly garments, to wear instead 
the defilement of what they were on the inside. He made that his clothing in place of his own. Well, he has this interaction with Peter that is most interesting in verse 6, but it was necessary if you and I are going to get the point and learn the lesson. It says that he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said, Lord, do you wash my feet? Now, Peter's buying time right now. He's very uncomfortable. He's that type of person that is just, he's not a hippie at heart. He doesn't want anyone near his feet or his breath or in his face. Like, he's just, Lord, and he's just buying time here. He's like, Lord, you're, are you going to wash my feet? You know, he's just, let's, can we change the subject? Are you done? I think you made it all the way around. I, 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 you started with me, I'm pretty sure, you know. Uh, yeah, you don't have to do this. And, 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 and Jesus answered, and he said this, and I'm glad he did. He said to him, what I do, you know not now, but you shall know hereafter. Meaning that there's more to what is going on right now than what you can understand. This isn't just me, I'm bothered by dirty feet. You know, there's more to it. And so Peter says in verse 8, he says, you shall never wash my feet. Now, I love this because for Peter, what this is, this is false piety. He's essentially just saying there, he's saying, Lord, you really don't have to go through the trouble. My feet are good. I know all these other guys, you know, they need it, but I don't need this, Lord. My feet are good. I don't, Lord, I don't even have feet. I don't have feet. Um, There's no, there's nothing here. You know, you could just move on, just move past. Lord, I, I don't, I don't need you to wash my feet. And then Jesus looks at Peter and he says this. He, He says, Peter, if, if I don't wash your feet, then you have no part with me. In other words, Peter, you have two choices right now is that you can either take your socks off or kick your sandals to the side and put your feet up on this knee of mine, or you can leave. But if you don't let me wash your feet, then you have no part. And so what Peter does, he does what we do. He goes from from super pious to falsely humble to where now he, he no longer is he like, Lord, you don't need to. Now he's like, Lord, my whole life is a mess. I'm a wretched sinner. I'm such a horrible human being. Lord, not just my feet, but wash my hands, wash my head. Lord, I'm, I need your holiness more than anyone else in this room. You know? And he just flips, right? He goes from one to the other, pious to humble. It's a false humility. And Jesus sobers him up. He says, Peter, come down, verse 10. He says, listen, and this is important. He says, he that is washed needeth not except to wash his feet, but is clean everywhere, and you are clean, but not all. In other words, what Jesus is saying here is that, Peter, this has nothing to do with your salvation. There's a difference between cleansing that comes from regeneration, cleansing that comes from salvation, cleansing that comes from being in a relationship with me. There's a difference between that and what I'm doing right now. What I'm doing right now is is a washing What I'm doing right now is I am attending to something that has gotten on you in the process of walking with me that needs to be removed. I'm dealing with something that needs to be cleansed, and I'm doing it in a very intentional way. It's not salvation. It's cleansing. Now, I love what Jesus does next. He says in verse 12, it says, So After he had washed their feet and had taken his garments, he finishes this illustration, this living sermon. And he was set down again. He said unto them, he asked the question, he says, know ye or do you understand what I have done to you? Now, the answer to that question is a resounding no. And the reason we know that is because Jesus already said they didn't understand. Remember, (laughs) he goes, what I do, you know, not now, but you shall know hereafter. So he told them they don't understand it, but he is drawing out of them, putting into them, think about this, realize what this means. Do you know what I have done to you? And the answer is no. Now, Jesus was asked during the course of his ministry, a profound question. It was a lawyer that came to him, and Jesus actually commended this lawyer for his question. But Jesus said to him, the man said to him, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, he said, the greatest commandment in the law is that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And then he said, and the second one's like unto it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus said these words, and listen carefully. He said, upon these two hang all the law and the prophets. Meaning that the fulfillment of all righteousness is in this one thing of loving the Lord with all your heart, mind, and soul, or strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. 
Now, we all probably understand that's the golden rule, that's the great command, that's the great ideal. But can I ask you, is there a human being alive today that truly loves the Lord with all their heart, mind, and strength? And, and, and I'm, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand because someone in here probably maybe would, you know, and, and we can't. Because the truth of the matter is that there is not one of us that loves the Lord with all of our heart, mind, and strength. And the way that we can prove that is the fact that we still sin. Because if we did love the Lord truly with all of our heart, mind, and strength, then we wouldn't sin against him. But that's why Jesus said that this is the fulfillment of the law, because the two things go hand in hand. Now, we all kind of struggle with that because we know that we're supposed to love the Lord with all of our heart, mind, and strength. But we don't love the Lord with all of our heart, mind, and strength. And here's the reason why we don't. The reason is because we don't see clearly his worth, his value, his person. We can't see it. We're veiled from it. We catch a little tiny glimpse of it. I was reading again that passage in Job where it talks about how God stretches out the heavens and how he, you know, ordains strength and and does all these amazing things. And then it just says, and these are the mere edges of his ways. You know, all these amazing things that we see, and it's just kind of the outside edge. It's like the outer cell crust of, of all that God is. But listen carefully. There is a day coming. It's told to us in Revelation chapter four, verse 11, that when we see him, in glory, when, when all of the veil is torn away and we see him clearly, it says that we will cast our crowns at his feet and we will declare, you are what? Worthy. You're worthy. Because when we see him, then we're going to realize that he is worthy of having all of my love. See, right now I can't see that. I can't, I just can't, I can't comprehend it. My affection is torn, it's, it's divided, it's given to other things because I can't see him to be the value upon which I can, can give all of my heart, all of my mind, all of my strength. I can't, I don't know how. I would need him to do something to show himself to me. But someday I will. And he knows that right now I can't see him in that. We can't comprehend it. Now, Shift gears for a minute. The Bible tells us that we have an enemy. His name is Satan. He's our adversary, and the Bible calls him the accuser of our brethren. He accuses us day and night before the throne of God. He looks out. He sees. He studies us. He keeps notes. He says, oh, they, they, they smoke pot again. I got them. Oh, they did it again. They peeked. They clicked. They swiped. They drank it, they got caught up in the gossip, and they spread those things, they laughed, they tore, they maligned, they cheated, and he goes, ah, and then he does what he does, is he goes before the throne of God, and he says, oh, have you considered your servant, and then he says your name in there, and then he brings his list, and he begins to tell God the things that you did, and he does it to you too, he accuses you, and he accuses you to God, he talks, he's such a talker. And he tells you all the things. And he lays out this whole thing. And then, and then as he hears it, he's sitting there. And it says that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. They're there. And the Father goes, really? He goes, you, they did? And he goes, you know what? I want to see the tape on that. Let me see the tape on that for a minute. And so they go and they, you know, they roll out the screen. And it's UHD. I mean, this is not 4K. This is HK resolution. And I mean, it's there. It's in living color, you know, and it's like Satan's like, I can't wait for this. I got the angles just right. This is going to be so good. It's going to be so good. And then he pushes play. And, and, and there you are, or there, there's the situation. There's the scene. There, there's where it was. But in the picture, you're not in the picture. It's actually... Jesus in the picture. And Jesus is there, and Jesus is doing the thing that you're being accused of doing. Jesus is stealing. Jesus is manipulating. Jesus is the one who's lying. Jesus is the one who's laughing around the table, gossiping. And the father sees the picture, and he looks at his son, and he says, Son? And Jesus goes, 
I, I was a little stressed. I was a little overwhelmed. I was a little behind on sleep. I had gotten some victory. I had gained some ground, but I, I have been struggling in this. And yes, I forgot it was a human being, and I did get carried away in the moment while we were there talking about them. And, and there was a few things said. It was me. Yeah, I did. I did it. I did it. But I paid for it. I paid for it. Because I did, I did absorb, I did endure the wrath, I incurred the penalty, I incurred the punishment for that sin. I paid for it on the cross. I was crucified and I rose again. And now I ever live, Lord and Father. And yeah, it was me. I, I did it. It was me. See, the Bible says that you and I are in Christ when we profess faith in him. We're in Christ. Meaning that when we do, it isn't us. It's, it's actually, we're bringing Jesus into the thing that we're doing. Now, do you realize what Jesus is doing here in this passage? Girding himself with the towel. Letting himself be covered with the dirt that's on the feet of his disciples. The dirt that represents the things that they picked up while they were walking with him along the way. The dirt that was on them is now on him. The things that were in them that they were ashamed of, that Peter didn't want Jesus to see or come near and wanted to pretend that weren't there. Those things are now on Jesus. He cleanses us of all of our sin. Jesus wears our dirt. He takes it off of us and he puts it on himself. That's what it means when it says that his mercies are renewed day by day. That's part of his love. His love covers a multitude of sins, the Bible says. Now I want to fast forward to the end of the chapter and I want to show you something. At the end of the chapter, verses 34 and 35, Jesus projects this same illustration, not just his relationship to us, but he projects it into our relationship with one another. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another, and that it's by this that all men shall know that you're my disciples if you have love one towards another. Now listen, this whole text and this whole chapter is heading towards this conclusion. And what Jesus gives here is a call a qualifier, and then an outcome. The call is clear. He says that you and I, that we are to love one another. That we're to look at each other and there's to be a love that is expressed, a love that is held, a love that is enacted, acted upon. There's a love that's supposed to come out from us. And then he qualifies that love by defining the type of love that it's supposed to be. And this is where he makes it impossible because he says, I want you to love each other in the same way that I have loved you. And this is where it breaks down and becomes impossible again because just like we can't love God perfectly because we can't see, we can't love each other perfectly because we can't see. We can't see what God sees when he looks on the inside of the other thing but yet we're called to do this. So how are we to fulfill a command that he gives to us that we can't fulfill perfectly even on the vertical, much less the horizontal? When Moses went up on Mount Sinai and he received the Ten Commandments, God was giving him the law, the law that, that would be given to Israel that would express his holiness. And at the same time that God was giving Moses the law, God was giving to Moses the instructions and the blueprints for the tabernacle and for, uh, you know, the priesthood and for the garments of Aaron and, and all this stuff. And, and so God was giving to Moses all of this information and this, this, this thing. And, and at that same moment, God was ordaining that one man out of all of the people that came out of Egypt, that one man would be called to be the high priest, that one man would stand before him, that would stand in his presence, that would be in the Holy of Holies. Now, that man, who, whose name was Aaron, at the very moment that he's being called and his garments are being designed by God, by the Almighty, that man who was left in charge at the bottom of the hill 
has all of the people naked and dancing around a golden calf. It's epic failure on the part of the man who's being chosen by God to stand in his presence and represent him for the people and represent the people to himself. And when Moses comes down the mountain carrying these two tablets from the stone, Moses sees this thing going on and he is so overwhelmed by the disconnect between what God just said and what he is seeing that he drops the commandments and they actually break. He sees this man has fallen so far from what God has, has, has called him to be. And it seems like this is a disconnect. There's something wrong here. It was actually the wisdom of God. Because Aaron fell so hard, Aaron was so dirty in what he had done that as the man that was called to represent God, he would never be able to be tempted when he was dealing with someone on the level of their sin to think that in some way they were less than what he was. Or that he could think judgmentally or condescendingly upon them. See, it was in the backdrop of his own failure that he was able to be a merciful and faithful high priest because he was kin both to the problem of sin and also to its solution because God had restored him in the same way that he would restore everyone else. He was the type, Christ was the fulfillment. But here's where the picture is completed. The reason why Aaron, that man called of God, was able to love people was because he was fully aware of what he had been cleansed and forgiven of. That's why Jesus said to Peter, I have to wash you. Because if I don't wash you, I can't use you. If you don't acknowledge your dirt and let your dirt get on me, if you don't let me take away the shame of your sin and expose it, then you're not going to be able to deal with someone else because you're constantly going to be comparing yourself with someone trying to make yourself better. You're going to constantly be looking at someone else's position and thinking how you could do it better. Looking at someone else's behavior and thinking how your behavior is better. The way they raise their kids, you could do it better. The way they run a country, you could do it better. The way that they exercise their gifts or their talents, you could do it better. But when you see what you are and you realize what Jesus has done for you, And how he has taken your dirt upon himself and he has covered the multitude of your failings and glorified you being in your place in the place of judgment. And then pouring out blood and water for your forgiveness and your sanctification. So that the water of his satisfaction and the water of his healing and the water of his vision and the water of his cleansing, and the water of his power could flow out of your life. Now, in the vulnerability of your own shame, you're able to look at someone else, and you're able to love them from the place of a servant. You know what? I can afford, because of what he's done for me, to take off the robe of my reputation. I can afford to take off the robe of my ego, of my degrees, of my attainments, of my achievements. I can take off the robe of my personality, of my charisma, of my influence. I can take off the robe of my self-love. And I'm able to look at what you're going through and see under the surface of the facade on the face and I can love you in your brokenness because I'm familiar with my own. I can take the same thing that Jesus has done for me and I can now extend that to you without condemning you for your weakness. And I can love you with the love that I've been loved with. And it's through the backdrop of what he's done for us that we can give what he calls us to give away to someone else. But it can't come as long as we're... Lord, I don't have no feet. There's no dirt in my life, Lord. If everyone's family could be as good as my family. Lord, if everyone could follow my example, you will never, ever, ever help a single soul. 
Because we can't help anybody from the place of our expertise and excellence. Listen. When we love someone else, the only way that we will ever love someone else and we can, is when we can look at them and we can genuinely say, I've got the dirt on you. I've got the dirt on you. The thing that you're struggling with, the place where you're weak, the place where you fail, the place where you stumbled again where you don't measure up, it's me. I've got it. I'm not slinging dirt at you. I'm not elevating myself. I'm realizing it's me. I'm just as bad. I, I had to have my feet washed. I had to have my sin forgiven. I had to have Jesus stand before the Father on my behalf and take the reproach and the shame for the things that I did again that I hate about myself. So let me walk with you there to the same Savior. Let me give to you what he's given to me. Let me accept you in the place that you are even though you're broken. I can do that because I am. I've got the dirt that's on you. Father, I just thank you that this evening as we stand in your presence and we can stand in his presence that you loved us with such a great love that you were so bent on having us with you for eternity on revealing your glory on imparting your wholeness and your healing in your life that you were willing not only to cleanse us with your blood but to wash us with your clothes to wear the shame of our dirt upon your very garments oh Lord we thank you for that tonight and we want to receive it Lord Lord we all struggle we see ourselves in the vilest of sinners we know that we're nothing without you and so tonight we want to say thank you Jesus for what you did for us what you do for us day by day And Lord, we want to pray tonight that you would help us, Lord, to humble ourselves and to let what's on our feet be seen. That we might love one another with a pure heart. And that we might fervently, Lord, give away what's been given to us. So help us, Lord. Fill us, Lord. Open our eyes, our understanding. Pour your water upon us tonight. Refresh your inheritance. We thank you for who you are your great power and your great love. It's in Jesus' name that we ask. Amen. Let's stand together. Thanks for joining us for the Pastor Nick Santo podcast. To regularly receive these teachings, be sure to subscribe so that you can get it automatically when it's released. If you find this material helpful, please share it and help us get the message of Jesus out to others. We also appreciate your feedback. So if you would, leave a review in iTunes or email us at pastor.nickpc at gmail.com. Until next time, may you continue to love, learn, and live the way of Jesus.